This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Creating Proximity to Others. We'll start with an Ensign College devotional address by Christina Baum entitled The Two Great Commandments. Following that message, we'll listen to Amy Peterson Jensen give her BYU Forum address entitled Why Our Bodies Matter in a Digital World. When asked by the Pharisee, What is the greatest commandment? The Savior did not hesitate and replied, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How do we keep the first commandment, to love the Lord our God? We are taught that if ye love me, keep my commandments. This is certainly true, and is a critical way that we show our love. But we also know that our attempts to always keep the commandments will come up short. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A dear friend of mine refers to our time here on earth as earth school. In this earth school, we will make mistakes. Even the best of us, with the best of intentions, will be unable to keep all of the commandments all of the time. We'll be incapable of showing the full measure of our love for our Lord through our own righteousness. But our loving Father knew this from the beginning, provided a way for us to repent and be forgiven. The atonement of our Savior Jesus Christ is plan A, not plan B. It is his plan for us to learn and to grow and to make mistakes while here in earth school. He wants us to have experiences here on earth that help us learn how to turn to him and ultimately return to him over and over through repentance. He wants us to not only gain a physical body, but to develop empathy for one another as a result of our experiences and our imperfections. So how then do we show our deep love for our Father in heaven when we are incapable of keeping all of the commandments all of the time? I believe the Savior showed the example for us. In Matthew chapter 25, he taught, For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in? Or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. When we love and serve others, and strive to keep the second commandment, it shows our love for our Father in heaven, and helps us to keep the first commandment. They are two sides of the same coin. We show our love for the Lord by following his example and by loving and serving our neighbor. We cannot claim to love the Lord and judge or look down on those he paid the ultimate price to redeem. Who then is our neighbor? The Savior was asked this very question and responded so beautifully with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He taught us that everyone, all of God's children, are our neighbors. The parable begins as a lawyer asked the Savior, And who is my neighbor? Christ then shared this powerful story of a traveler from Jerusalem to Jericho who was attacked, robbed, wounded, and left by the wayside by thieves. Two people passed by him without offering aid. There was a priest, a church leader, a teacher, and a Levite, one who was assigned from the tribe to assist in the temple. Both of them passed by on the other side. 
neither stopping to help. Both were preoccupied or too busy with important assignments. Finally, the Good Samaritan did not pass by on the other side, but stopped to give immediate assistance. Jesus then said to the questioner and to us, Go and do thou likewise. As we look to the life and teachings of the Savior, we learn how to show this love. I would like to share three examples from the Savior's life to provide a pattern for us for how to love one another. The Savior taught us to see one another, how to serve one another, and how to forgive one another. First, how to see one another. The first is the story of Zacchaeus as found in the New Testament. Sister Sharon Eubank, first counselor in the General Relief Society Presidency, shared this story in the April 2019 General Conference Address entitled, The Light That Shines in the Darkness. Luke 19 tells the story of the chief tax collector in Jericho named Zacchaeus. He climbed a tree in order to see Jesus walk by. Zacchaeus was employed by the Roman government and viewed as corrupt and a sinner. Jesus saw him in the tree and called to him, saying, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And when Jesus saw the goodness of Zacchaeus' heart and the things he did for others, he accepted his offering, saying, This day is salvation come to this house, for he is also a son of Abraham. Jesus knows my heart and sees me. He knows your heart and sees you. He expects us to do the same, to see each other with eyes of compassion and love. I have been a grateful recipient of someone seeing me for more than who I was at the present time. I joined the church as a nine-year-old young girl through my friendship with a neighborhood friend whose name was Christine, and she lived a few houses away. Our backyards were near Katie Corner to one another, and she and I had great adventures. Christine and Christina, we were inseparable. However, a few years later, my family moved from Washington to Oregon, but my best friend and I remained very close. We would visit each other regularly during the summer breaks, and our parents would drive several hours to meet halfway between Seattle and Portland to send us to one another's homes. Then we discovered the train that ran between the cities, and our parents would take us to the train station. I will never forget one particular trip. My best friend's father, Dave, was driving me to the train station to return to Portland. On the drive, he spent time talking to me about my life, my goals, where I saw myself in the future. He then shared with me a vision of who he saw that I could become. For the first time, I began to see myself differently. My family life at home was dysfunctional, and as he spoke with me, I began to believe that I could be someone different than my family path was leading me. He believed in me. He loved me. And that confidence in me has changed my life. Just as the Savior saw Zacchaeus in the tree, he wants us to look around and see one another. Truly see one another with love and without judgment for we are all works in progress. President Eyring, in his October 2018 conference address entitled, Try, 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 stated, Many years ago, I was first counselor to a district president in the eastern United States. More than once, as we were driving in our little branches, he said to me, Hal, when you meet someone, treat them as if they were in serious trouble, and you'll be right more than half the time. Not only was he right, but I have learned over the years that he was too low in his estimate. The Lord expects us to love and serve one another, to strive to see each other through his eyes with compassion. Second, how to serve one another. The Savior spent his life going about doing good. He taught us that as we serve one another, we show our love and we are serving him. I especially love the story of the Savior washing the feet of the apostles. He lowered himself down to clean arguably the lowliest and dirtiest part of their bodies, their feet. There is such rich symbolism here. Again, I've been a grateful recipient of such service. 
A number of years ago, my family purchased an old home in American Fork, Utah. This home had been built in stages, and the oldest stage dating to pre-1900. As we began remodeling, we encountered many surprises, some interesting and fun, such as the layers and layers of wallpaper that served as a time capsule walking us back through history. However, there were other surprises lurking in that old house. The kitchen was part of the older section of the house, and one morning, without warning, the fluorescent tube light fixture that hung from the ceiling gave way and swung down and crashed onto the floor, ripping the electrical line out of the ceiling and down the wall. Fortunately, my grandmother had just passed under with her morning orange juice (laughs) just before it fell, and no one was injured. This began the great kitchen remodel. The walls and the ceiling were lath and plaster, and as we attempted to repair the damage of the fallen light, the ceiling and walls, the ceiling began to crumble. We decided to remove the ceiling, but as we did, the walls began to crumble. Then we had to take down the cabinets, and next thing we knew, we were squarely into a full demolition and remodeling project that we had not quite intended. One day in particular, I will never forget, we began removing part of the wall in a section of the ceiling and discovered that hidden behind that wall was an old chimney. As we broke into the ceiling, years of soot that had laid dormant were released into the air in one large poof. The kitchen had open walkways into the dining room and the family room, and the black soot quickly spread out onto everything. No nook or cranny seemed safe. I remember looking around, myself now dirty with soot, and thinking, how will I ever get this clean? I felt overwhelmed. The soot was difficult to remove. It just seemed to stick to everything. I remembered that I had seen vans for Utah disaster cleanup companies and tried to call them. I explained my predicament, but they kindly let me know that their service was for other types of actual disasters. (laughs) I felt silly, but to me this felt like a disaster. I had little toddlers at the time, and now no place was safe and clean for them to play. I remember calling members of the ward and members of our extended family. They were so kind. They were so quick to drop what they were doing and come to help. They brought gloves. They brought cleaning supplies. One even drove down from Logan that day. They came and rolled up their sleeves, and they didn't hesitate. I remember pausing during the cleanup and looking around at them. I felt such gratitude for their Christ-like examples. That day, with the ceiling and walls literally crumbling around me, covered in soot, I felt as if I were certainly one of the least of these. I felt this gratitude and swelling in my heart many more times as I look at friends and family and co-workers helping clean, paint, and repair my home and basement during a recent life change that caused me to feel rushed to possibly sell my home. I felt it as I watched my children serve one another in small acts of kindness and inclusion. I felt it as I watched news accounts of people helping others during recent events, such as fires, COVID, windstorms, and earthquakes. As we love and serve one another, we show pure love. At these moments, as we serve the least of these, we are serving our Savior. I hope that I'm able to repay all of the generous service that I've received over my lifetime. Third, how to forgive one another. The Savior showed his love in a way that none of us could. He gave his life for us. In John 15, 13, we learn, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The Savior gave us the ultimate gift of the atonement. With that gift, he expects us to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. The Savior showed us a perfect example of how to forgive others. On the cross, in the very depth of agony and feeling the weight of our sins, pain, and separation from the Father, the Savior's thoughts were turned towards others, and he said, Forgive them, for they're not what they do. In April of 2007, President Faust, then Second Counselor in the First Presidency, shared the following story that illustrates 
the peace that can come through forgiveness. In the beautiful hills of Pennsylvania, a devout group of Christian people live a simple life without automobiles, electricity, or modern machinery. They work hard and live quiet, peaceful lives separate from the world. Most of their food comes from their own farms. The women sew and knit and weave their clothing, which is modest and plain. They are known as the Amish people. A 32-year-old milk truck driver lived with his family in their nickel mines community. He was not Amish, but his pickup truck route took him to many Amish dairy farms, where he became known as the quiet milkman. Last October, he suddenly lost all reason and control. In his tormented mind, he blamed God for the death of his first child and some unsubstantiated memories. He stormed into the Amish school without provocation, released the boys and adults, and tied up the ten girls. He shot the girls, killing five and wounding five. Then he took his own life. This shocking violence caused great anguish amongst the Amish, but no anger. There was hurt, but no hate. Their forgiveness was immediate. Collectively, they began to reach out to the milkman's suffering family. As the milkman's family gathered in his home the day after the shootings, an Amish neighbor came over, wrapped his arms around the father of the dead gunman, and said, We will forgive you. Amish leaders visited the milkman's wife and children to extend their sympathy, their forgiveness, their help, and their love. About half of the mourners at the milkman's funeral were Amish. In turn, the Amish invited the milkman's family to attend the funeral services of the girls who had been killed. A remarkable peace settled on the Amish as their faith sustained them during the crisis. One local resident very eloquently summed up the aftermath of this tragedy when he said, We were all speaking the same language, and not just English, but a language of caring, a language of community, and a language of service. And yes, a language of forgiveness. It was an amazing outpouring of their complete faith in the Lord's teachings, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. The family of the milkman who killed the five girls released the following statement to the public. To our Amish friends, neighbors, and local community, our family wants each of you to know that we are overwhelmed by the forgiveness, grace, and mercy that you've extended to us. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. The prayers, flowers, cards, and gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Please know that our hearts have been broken by all that has happened. We are filled with sorrow for all of our Amish neighbors, whom we have loved and continue to love. We know that there are many hard days ahead for all of the families who lost loved ones, and so we will continue to put our hope and trust in the God of all comfort as we all seek to rebuild our lives. How could the whole Amish group manifest such an expression of forgiveness? It's because of their faith in God and trust in His Word, which is part of their inner beings. They see themselves as disciples of Christ and want to follow His example. Hearing of this tragedy, many people sent money to the Amish, to pay for the health care of the five surviving girls and for the burial expenses of the five who were killed. As a further demonstration of their discipleship, the Amish decided to share some of the money with the widow of the milkman and her three children because they too were victims of this terrible tragedy. Forgiveness does not always come so immediately. For some, it can take days, weeks, months, or even years to achieve. Forgiveness is not an event, but rather a journey. I have learned that the Savior— is there with us through every step of that journey. Even as we strive to forgive, we may fall short, and the Lord can make up the difference. 
After all, the price has already been paid by him on behalf of whomever we are striving to forgive. If we can accept that and accept the atonement fully, we can let go of the need for justice for others and ourselves. I also feel a need to mention that throughout this journey, it is critical to remember the words of Elder Holland when he shared, Forgive and ye shall be forgiven, Christ taught in the New Testament times. And in our day, I the Lord will forgive whom I will forgive, but if you is required to forgive all men. It is, however, important for some of you living in real anguish to note what he did not say. He did not say, You are not allowed to feel true pain or real sorrow from the shattering experiences you have had at the hand of another. Nor did he say, In order to forgive fully, you have to enter, re-enter a toxic relationship or return to an abusive, destructive circumstance. But notwithstanding even the most terrible offenses that might come to us, we can rise above our pain only when we put our feet onto the path of true healing. That path is the forgiving one walked by Jesus of Nazareth, who calls out to each of us, Come, follow me. While it may not always come immediately, and there can be real pain, we are asked to forgive fully. I love a poem composed by Marguerite Stewart that is entitled Forgiveness Flower. The poem reads, When I went to the door, at the whisper of a knocking, I saw Simeon Gantner's daughter, Kathleen, standing there in her shawl and in her shame, sent to ask forgiveness flower for her bread. Forgiveness flower, we call it in our corner. If one has erred, one is sent to ask flower of his neighbors. If they loan it to him, that means he can stay. But if they refuse, he'd best take himself off. I looked at Kathleen. What a jewel of a daughter, though not much like her father. More's the pity. I'll give you flower, I said, and went to measure it. Measuring was the rub. If I gave too much, neighbors would think I made sin easy. But if I gave too little, they would label me close. While I stood measuring, Joel, my husband, came in from the mill, a great bag of flour on his shoulder. And seeing her there, shrinking in the doorway, he tossed the bag at her feet. Here, take all of it. And so she had flour for many loaves while I stood measuring. I hope that we can each be the type of people who can turn issues with others over to the Lord and who generously toss a bag of flour out to any we interact with. Let us not stand measuring, but be quick to love and forgive as the Savior would have us do. The Lord has given us two great commandments, and other aspects of the gospel, all other aspects, fit under these commandments. He asks us to love him with all our hearts and to love one another. Then he lived and died in a way that showed us how to do this. And just as the Savior forgave each of us of our sins and weaknesses, he expects us to forgive one another. And when that's hard, when that feels really difficult to do, He is there to fill in the gap and guide us through. I am so grateful for my Savior. I am so thankful for his life and teachings and for the example that he set for me in all things. I am so grateful for the gift of repentance that allows me to be clean and to try again each day. I know that my Savior lives, and I know that he knows and loves me, and he knows and loves each of you. I know that as we focus on the two great commandments, that all other aspects of life will fall into place. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is creating proximity to others. We've just heard from Christina Baum. After the break, we'll return for a message from Amy Peterson Jensen entitled, Why Our Bodies Matter in a Digital World. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. 
Our theme today is Creating Proximity to Others. Next, we'll hear from Amy Peterson Jensen, Associate Dean of BYU's College of Fine Arts and Communications and a Professor of Theater and Media Arts at the time of this address, entitled Why Our Bodies Matter in a Digital World. I am a mother of 20-year-old twin daughters. I'm a 53-year-old woman. I've been married to my favorite human for 32 years. I'm a daughter, a sister. I'm a young women's leader. I am a faith-filled member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am a teacher. I reside in the western United States at the base of a beautiful mountain range. Additionally, I'm an academic who thinks and writes about youth and digital media and performance. Truthfully, I have less time to think about adolescence and performance these days because I'm also an administrator at this university, where I spend much of my time leading college meetings and completing university paperwork. These sentences only describe some of me. I'm also a part of a civic community, a religious community, an academic community, a theater community, a hiking community, and so on. It's from all of these contexts that I've read and reread communication scholar Amy Carrillo Rowe's essays. One of these says, The sites of our belonging constitute how we see the world, what we value, who we are becoming. She also says, The meaning of self is never individual, but instead is a shifting set of relations that we move in and out of, often without reflection. The scholar confides in readers that she has often resided in spaces where she has shifted and changed as a part of the environment and the people within it. However, she notes that she has still thought of herself as singular despite adaptations to environments and people. Don't we all do that? Carrillo Rowe describes this mode as ineffective in our contemporary moment. She makes the point that we can no longer live lone and adjacent to each other. Instead, she invites us to see our relationships to others as more visible and intertwined. In this way, our being is constituted not first through the self, but at its longings to be with. What matters, then, is where we place our bodies and with whom we build our effective ties. I recognize these ideas from our faith tradition when we say phrases like standing in holy places and loving our neighbor— words that invoke proximity and presence. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what her ideas teach me about my own belongings and our collective belongings and how carefully thinking about the sites of our belonging might impact how we engage with each other in our live spaces and in our digital worlds. Today I'm going to share my personal stories, stories from my arts education classrooms, and stories that other artists created. In my sharing of arts ideas, practices, and processes, I hope that we can all get a better sense of how we might expand our own sites of belonging and increase our desires to build effective ties with others that we may not have included in our previous circles. Our interactions in digital worlds often expand our sense of fitting in. 
I'm an arts educator, as I've said. I think, I write, and teach about the ways that digital media influences us. My work is grounded in theories that support digital learning and acknowledge young people's persistent access to and affinity for digital technologies. In that context, I explore how young people come to understand, practice, and perform their identities within digital and social media spaces. I investigate the ways that educators might help young people to develop and then practice critical and creative approaches to consuming art and making art using digital media. I really value the ways that young people use media by applying its associated ideas, beliefs, and methods. I also deeply care about the ways that young people do media by assimilating its understandings, procedures, and affectivity. Like many of you, I actively consume and create content within digital and social media worlds. My goal in digital settings is to access useful knowledge, encourage my own curiosities, and to identify beauty in the world. I am currently, and with a lot of anxiety, trying to figure out TikTok. I've become a pretty okay Zoom teacher. I'm obsessed with watching YouTube cooking videos made by millennials. I'll tell you it's a niche market. My Netflix account is kind of a disaster. I'm never without a book on Audible. I use Instagram to stay in contact with people that I care about. I particularly enjoy seeing the things that people make. For example, my colleague and visual arts educator, Luis Vega, uses IGTV to introduce his students at Linwood High School to visual arts principals and to showcase the work of guest artists. My neighbor, Dwayne Call, captures beautiful images of the natural world near our homes. His vision of Utah County makes me proud to call it my home. The artist Sunny Taylor shares her paintings in progress. Her posts lay bare her art-making processes in ways that truly make me happy. I also use digital media to build and maintain ties with people that I love. I use Google Duo and Facebook Messenger for weekly chats with my twin daughters, Lily and Lauren. Both women are serving missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and are across the country from one another. Digital technologies help me to hear their lovely voices and see their beautiful faces. In true mom style, I get to ask them, are you safe? Are you happy? Did you eat some vegetables? And then I see their responses, which is usually a lovingly crafted eye roll. Marco Polo helps me to overcome geographic distance to connect with my mom, my sisters, and their children. Across this year, my sister Mary has shared intense and informative tutorials on using an electric toothbrush. She's a dental hygienist, and so her tutorials are serious business and very useful. People of all ages have done the splits for the camera. And we have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we can fast-forward through the videos without purchasing the upgrade. Mostly, we have repeatedly asked to see more of my niece Emily's baby girl, Cora Jane. To me, these are all worthy endeavors in the digital world. In contrast, I have to admit that sometimes my digital media consumption becomes imbalanced and no longer serves me. There have been times in this last year where the record shows that I picked up my phone more than 100 times in a day. During a particularly dark time, I found myself actively imagining slights for my friends and family as I scrolled through my social media feeds. 
I chose to consume words and images that fed my fear and anger. I clicked through news reports and memes and tweets that actively supported my persistently narrowing point of view, each time further commodifying the opinions of others through my own likes and follows. I wasn't actively helping those that I felt were marginalized or in danger. Instead, I had let algorithms paralyze me. As a young media scholar, I learned about and valued the notion that media could be made and viewed in charitable ways. My teacher, the BYU film historian Dean Duncan, asserted that film viewing is a vicarious experience in which we begin to understand another's efforts through sympathetic participation at their side. Viewing films in this way allows us to practice truly seeing others as God sees them. Trying on Duncan's concept of a charitable cinema— The film theorist Sharon Swenson writes, Seeing the acts and choices of others from inside the characters or through a sympathetic narrator's eyes can increase our understanding of the choices of others. The concept of charitable cinema applies to digital and social media, too. Media artifacts, charitably made or viewed, offer us the opportunity to experience other people to see the reasons they make choices, and to experience the consequences of those choices alongside them. When I actively sought to employ the precepts of a charitable cinema into my digital media consumption and creation, I was better able to consider and more fully appreciate the lives of others. For me, the antidote to my own despair was treating my digital interactions as a reciprocal experience with other human beings— No matter how much I love the digital world and the work associated, I know that our physical bodies and souls associated matter more than any tool. I know that God, in His infinite wisdom, invites us to first love Him and then to love our neighbor. My experiences in the arts have taught me over and over that our bodies matter here and now and in the eternities. I regularly hike on the trails near my home, but last summer, as my worries about the pandemic increased, I narrowed my movement to the Shoreline Trail. Each morning, my dog Dot and I would head south on the trail and then move up towards Slate Canyon. We were often alone, but we also regularly encountered trail friends. We passed one group nearly every day—an older man, his wife, and their three amiable dogs— At first, I just nodded as we shifted around each other, but eventually I smiled and waved as we came upon the group. Occasionally, we briefly chatted with six feet between us. We didn't know each other's names, but I was really cheered by our encounters. I recognized them as my neighbors. One day, much later in the year, I was hurrying along the trail, calling to Dot to move faster, when we came upon four of them. One of the dogs was missing. I could tell that something had happened, and so I asked if everything was okay. The woman whispered to me from across the path that one of their beloved dogs had passed away. Her face indicated that this was a great loss for them and that her heart was broken and mine broke too. Tears ran down my face as I reached out to put my arms around her And then remembering myself and the confines of the pandemic, I pulled my arms back into my own body. And I mouthed, I'm sorry. I'm so very sorry. And she replied, 
I know. I know. This was a small moment, but I haven't stopped thinking about how much our bodies encountering and then responding to each other on that trail mattered to me. For a moment, I was proximate with my neighbor. Brian Stevenson, the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, taught us in another BYU forum that proximity allows us to see and hear things that we wouldn't otherwise see or hear. He reminded us that as we intentionally cultivate immediacy with others, our knowledge increases and we are better able to problem-solve. Ravi S. Rajan, the president of the California Institute of the Arts, extends this notion to arts-making and receiving. He suggests that the act of creation fosters new proximity to problems, to history, and to the everyday circumstances we might not think about. He calls on artists to meet this particular moment of distance and division by making art that shows us how we got here, art that reveals us, art that binds us together. When I hear this charge, I immediately think about the public school theater and English classrooms where I taught for most of my 20s. Teaching and learning with those young people changed me politically, socially, intellectually, and spiritually. I also think of the secondary classrooms where pre-service theater and media and English teachers here at BYU will find their teacher voices and find their teacher moves. For me, arts classrooms, and especially performing arts classrooms, are sacred spaces where we have countless opportunities to become proximate and feel the natural inclination to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those in need of comfort. A few years ago, a drama teacher and scholar, Jo Beth Gonzalez, shared a story about her own intentional community building within a drama classroom. This story and the teacher who shared it influenced my artistic and pedagogical practice daily. I wanted to give you a tangible example of how arts classrooms invite proximity and presence. So with Jo Beth's permission, I invited a group of BYU artists, educators, and students to create an evocation of that story. Here it is. One Friday afternoon, a student from my introductory theater class, Sue, died in a car accident. Monday, the first day of classes after the accident, I expected students to be upset because Sue had been close to several of them. And when class began, I said that Sue was always a lively presence in class and that we knew she would not be back to sit in her seat again. I recognized that we could feel her loss, but claimed that her memory would remain with us throughout the semester. We paused in silence for a while. Then I asked if anyone would like to say anything. No one spoke. I asked if they would like a little time to reflect, either silently or in words or movement, and someone quietly offered that movement would be nice. My student teacher and I taped a long piece of brown paper across the blackboard. I pulled out a container of colored Sharpies and explained that anyone could get up at any time, as often as they wanted, to draw a picture or a thought they had, or they could write a few words to sue herself or in tribute or in a memory of her. They could even respond to each other. 
I began by drawing a picture and added a couple of words. Then students, one by one, stepped up to the wall. At times, four or five students stood along the brown paper. We ebbed and flowed like this for 15 minutes or so. Eventually, I suggested that everyone read the wall since they had collectively made it. A student asked if we could give the brown paper mural to Sue's mom. I agreed, and the student offered to take it to her. Silently, my student teacher and I took it down and folded the long sheet in half. I said to the class, I'll fold it like a stage backdrop. So I made a crease after each fold and aligned the sides After folding, the brown paper was a small 12 by 5 inch package. I placed a piece of the red duct tape across the back, turned it over, and wrote, To Sue's family, from intro to drama, and said to the class, Let's all sign it. Everyone passed the package around, and after the last person signed it, I handed it to Sue's friend, who put it in her backpack. Later, my student teacher noted that the class that day felt spiritual. He said that the time I took to fold the paper, the care I took with each crease, was a process of packing up Sue's life in our class with meaningful attention. As Jo Beth's story illustrates, arts classrooms can provide space where young people and and their teachers practice the proximity that Brian Stevenson describes. Spaces where their presence and the presence of others matter, where their bodies matter, where their very souls matter. Our bodies, our souls, need practice in critical thinking and creating. Critical thinking and creating is vital to our agency, the very element we are all here to develop. The violinist and BYU professor Alexander Woods says, My creative practice is the work of translation. I have always resonated with music. I love how music is vibrations. In other words, for Alex, music is primarily a physical thing. He continues, These vibrations pass through each of us in a unique way. As I translate a piece of music, I hope to be true to how the music affects me, and I hope to affect my listeners in the same way. Practice provides a set-apart time to connect mind and body. In this space, I am free to find the truth about my playing. I can begin to answer questions such as, Am I getting enough sound? Am I getting the sound I want? Will my interpretation have its intended impact on the audience? This time of mindful inquiry is something I truly enjoy. In my classes, we call what Alex describes critical creativity. Critical creativity necessitates both critical thinking or the active participation in disciplinary discourses, methodologies, and interpretive frames, and creativity— which involves imaginative explorations that lead to authentic ideas and original work. BYU visual arts education professor Daniel T. Barney describes a critical creative approach in this way. 
He says, artists move between concepts, play with possibilities, problem find as opposed to problem solve, and tinker with available understandings, objects, relations, and representations. In my digital media class, pre-service te- pre teachers study the photography and video works of Nina Kachadorian. We do this as an example of critical creativity. Her ongoing series, Seed Assignment, consists of photographs, video, and sound works that have all been made while flying on an airplane. The project began unexpectedly with an international flight in 2010 and is ongoing. Kachadorian sets her own constraints for her work. For example, she begins and completes the project during the course of the flight. She only uses a camera phone and materials that are readily available around the seat that she's assigned on the airplane or materials that she finds in the airplane bathroom. She has generated artistic work in, on almost 200 flights in the last 11 years. She describes the project in this way. She says, Seed assignment is born from an investment in thinking on your feet, from optimism about the artistic potential that lurks within the mundane, uh, and from curiosity about the productive tension between freedom and constraint. Here are three images from this series. She entitles this part of the series Lavatory Self-Portraits in the Flemish Style. She describes her process for making these, saying, I spontaneously put a tissue paper toilet seat cover over my head, and I took a picture in the mirror using my cell phone. The image, to me, evoked 15th century Flemish portraiture. I decided to add more images. I decided to add more images made in this mode and planned to take advantage on the long-haul flight from San Francisco to Auckland. I made several forays to the bathroom from my aisle seat, and by the time we landed, I had a large group of new photographs. At first glance, one might not find value in her work. As children, my daughters described contemporary art like this as the freaky stuff that mom loves. And it's true, I am a fangirl of Cachadorian's work. Here's why. She is curious about the world around her. She imaginatively explores the resources within her reach. She works to understand complex and competing histories within her discipline. In actively practicing critical and creative approaches, she asserts her own educated ideas into art's conversation. She practices proximity to the ideas that interest her by engaging her mind and body, and I would add her very soul, to develop these understandings. Art making and viewing teaches us that where we place our bodies matters. The holy ground we create in physical and digital spaces matter. Context matters. While making art, we often learn that the circumstances that impact our own bodies, as well as the souls of others, must be carefully and generously considered. Art experiences help us to better understand the backgrounds, situations, and circumstances that make up the souls that we encounter. Collaborating with other artists, we learn that individuals bring their own unique skills and beliefs and experiences to any creative endeavor. Intentionally making or viewing art with others' perspectives in mind helps us to arrive at informed choices that are consistent with our own values while welcoming and appreciating the perspectives of others. 
Benjamin Thevenin, a media literacy professor on this campus, invites us to think about perspective-taking when we view art. He says, There's no single authoritative meaning inherent in a work of art. Rather, there always exists the possibility of multiple meanings, determined both by the characteristics of that work and the diverse experiences, perspectives, and associations the audience brings. The work of choreographer and BYU dance education professor Kori Wakamatsu exemplifies the arts thinking that values context. Kori developed the choreography for the contemporary dance The Burden of Nonsense in the fall of 2020. It was then performed by the BYU Contemporary Dance Theater in 2021. Like many of us, Corey often felt confounded by the pressures and insecurities that rose in 2020. She felt the weight of the pandemic and also deeply feared increased racial violence against minority populations within the United States. In her artist statement about the work, she says, In addition to global turmoil, it was a time of grief and struggle for my family— Attempts to find clarity or sound reasoning often led to nonsensical meanderings. Through her own creative processes, modes of inquiry, and inspiration, she developed a choreographic intent that reflected that weight. She says, The rice bag props were inspired by hoarding trends. Scarcity of toilet paper was amusing at times, but when I could not find rice for my family— The realities of the pandemic hit me with heaviness. There was something unsettling and ironic about the inability to find rice for my Asian-American family while Asian-Americans were simultaneously being persecuted across the country. My husband's family, she says, uses a colloquial term for the United States, which roughly translates to rice country, or in other words, land of plenty. Visually, the rice bags represent weight and physical items, yet carry metaphorical meanings of burden and overload. Importantly, Corey also invited the student dancers to commit their skills and ideas to the development process. She describes their collaborative work, saying, We experimented with movement inspired by a long list of words that included confusion, upside down, discombobulation, blur, pause, shift, break, and nonsensical. During the final rehearsals, we discussed how dancers could artistically convey ideas of burden and nonsense. I encouraged the performers to find motivation in the fact that everyone has burdens, whether they are apparent or not, and that the pandemic exacerbated the bewildering effects of turbulence. In viewing this piece, Professor Wakamatsu's context matters. Her dancers' context matter but our reaching out to her with our own context, that also matters. Arts making provides the ways and means for us to recognize and appreciate one another. Several years ago, Dr. Ronnie Jo Draper and I, along with a group of arts education colleagues, set out to write a scholarly book. This book was about arts education and literacies, and arts education and the literacies required to teach and learn authentically within the arts. 
While the others in the group were practicing artists and arts educators, Ronnie Joe was a literacy educator who had taught mathematics in a secondary setting and was currently teaching multicultural education classes at BYU. We began the book by asserting that education as an endeavor provides opportunities for human beings to practice the skills and create the associations necessary to actively engage in the world. We emphasize that preparing human beings with the intellectual and principled habits necessary to wholeheartedly participate in the world required conversation. In the introduction to the book, we wrote, While conversation may result in the exchange of information, inquiry, persuasion, discovery, or the improvement of the human condition, it certainly needn't. Rather, conversation simply allows humans to acknowledge and enjoy one another. Preparing to write the book, Ronnie Joe took this notion of conversation seriously. To better understand the processes, texts, and literacies associated with the arts, she took classes and workshops here at BYU. She sang in the University Chorale, led by one of our collaborators, Paul Broomhead. She studied art-making processes with Dan Barney and his visual arts education students. Pam Mussel taught her to move with other beginning dancers, and she engaged in performance practices alongside my theater educators in my classroom. She sought out opportunities to understand and made efforts to belong. In sharing our experiences, stories, tools, and processes, she came to see herself as an art maker, as a creator. By viewing our arts-making processes and participating in artistic efforts, she became a part of our communities of practice. Anyone that knows Ronnie Jo knows that this is only part of her story. She's an avid knitter, a film producer, a mother, a grandmother, an LGBTQ advocate, a teacher, a scholar, and an indigenous woman. At her core, she is a learner. She gathers useful knowledge and experiences and then actively applies them in her efforts to acknowledge, enjoy, advocate for, and embrace others. She embodies the university charge set forth in the aims of a BYU education to continually develop faith, intellect, and character in order to bless her family, her community, her church, and the larger society. To demonstrate how intentional acts of creation can lead to a sense of belonging, I asked her how she marshals her knowledge and experiences to identify and create good things in the world. Here is one of her stories. My great-grandmother, Lucinda, was a basket maker, and she was a master basket maker. Her baskets were on display for many, many years in the San Francisco Natural History Museum as examples of Yurok basketry. And so... Basket making is important to the the Yurok people, um, and it was important to her. It was clearly part of my, um, I felt like a part, like my inheritance that I needed to continue somehow, but I didn't know how to do it. And I wanted Lucinda to teach me how to make baskets, which would be impossible. Um, she passed away 
just within months after I was born. So we were only on the earth together for a very, very short time. But I, but I had this, had this feeling that I, that this is something I could learn to do. And that would be like a way of um, continuing her work. I have a cousin who has returned to basket making. Um, and so when I went to the reservation, I spent a lot of time with my cousin and learning how to gather, learning how to weave. And, and even in some ways for us teaching each other, uh, you know, my first degree is in mathematics. And, you know, my cousin was saying, I just don't know, like, how to go about doing this pattern, how to, how to think through the pattern. And I said, well, you know, we've got to think about how many weaves, how many sticks you have up and let's sort of divide that out. And then she brightened her face up and she just said, this is what we needed. We needed you to bring back <laughs> this math knowledge. Like, yeah, like, like being a geometry teacher in this moment is the one of the ideal situations to be able to figure out how to put the pattern on the basket. And my father had always told me, like, you're great grandma lucinda was excellent at mathematics she could she could just figure it out she didn't have patterns sitting next to her she just knew how many like how many sticks were up how many what pattern could go into that basket and so i was very interested in learning that and i felt sad in a way that that lucinda wasn't there to help me but then i found myself being on the land and being in the spaces that i knew that that she had been and I could imagine that because this is just the truth. Like I knew like I'm carrying her DNA. Her DNA is in me. I I imagine that I can look at my hands and there's a resemblance of her hands. That that I can look at my face and there's a resemblance of her face. There's something that it's not just it's not just a shadow. Like it's a physical um presence of her in me. And then when I would stand on the land, I would know, like, that's where she stood. That's where our people have stood for thousands of years. Um, that's where we understand the creator placed us. That was the beginning of the world. And then when I would reach out and gather maybe willow roots or willow sticks or, or hazel or whatever, that I can imagine that that plant had the same DNA of the plants that Lucinda touched, like time and space, it didn't matter so much. Like we were, we were together in that moment. I was carrying her. She was guiding my hands and I was observing the plants that she had observed, that she had tended. And now I was tending them. And it was, it was truly glorious. It was, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that's, I think I think it was heaven. I think it was such a beautiful way for us to be together. We live in a digital world. We use digital media every day. We do digital and social media so regularly that it's infused into nearly all of the ways that we engage with others. I began today with a call for us to actively consider where we place our bodies where we send our souls, and with whom we build our effective ties. In both our physical and in our digital worlds, we should learn to create proximity 
and immediacy rather than distance and division. Carrillo Rowe proposes that we long for a world that is more inclusive and representative of the whole of who we should be. She imagines individuals leaning and tipping towards others, just making a little effort to close the distance between people that sometimes feels overwhelming. We should all practice leaning and tipping towards charitable interpretations of others. We should practice purposefully placing our bodies, carefully orienting our souls, in order to create holy ground where our own souls can expand and the worth of other souls can be perceived. In Omni of the Book of Mormon, we're told to offer our whole souls as an offering. What matters, then, is where we place our bodies, where we take our souls, and with whom we build our effective ties. We can, in fact, no longer live alone and adjacent to each other. We must see our relationships to others as more visible and intertwined. And education in the arts has taught me that we should carefully practice seeing all people as sharing the same trails, where joy is transmitted in simple gestures and pain can be comforted through pure empathy and understanding. These are the gifts of proximity and presence. These are the blessings of loving our neighbors. This is the holy ground we can create in all of the spaces we inhabit. This, this is the sacred classroom we can all share. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Creating Proximity to Others with thoughts from Christina Baum and Amy Peterson Jensen. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.